Welcome once again to the second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. Still coming at you from my bedroom. Sigh. (laughs) Um, As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. And so I just wanted to start tonight with a uh, super quick apology for missing last week. Uh, Life was pretty stressful and I just needed to take an actual long weekend where I didn't have to do anything. Uh, I was basically falling asleep on my feet on Friday and um, my wonderful husband slash editor was like, please just go take a nap or do nothing. It'll be okay. Um, But I do always feel bad when I miss a week. So I do apologize. And so hopefully tonight we should be back to normal. There shouldn't be any audio glitches or problems. My mic seems to be working again properly, which is exciting. And so, yeah. Uh, Today we are going to do one of our sort of classics where we talk a lot about all of the infectious diseases that are out there at the moment. But we will end up at the end talking about some things that are not related to infectious diseases. And uh, we're going to finish up with some really interesting uh, show, oh, sorry, uh, some interesting stories about octopus and um, how they can relate to things like material sciences. So very fun. The first thing we are going to talk about tonight is, well, COVID. Now, COVID does seem to be leveling off somewhat, but it is still up from where it was in June. And so uh, the numbers that we gather about positivity are obviously greatly reduced at this point because most people are doing home testing. And so the numbers that we're seeing are elevated, which means they're probably more elevated than we are able to currently see. There could be a lot more COVID out there right now because most people are not reporting into the CDC when they get a positive um, reading. And so, yeah, the BA5 variant continues to dominate in the U.S. and abroad. So um, at least we are aware of the dominant strain and we're working to create that new um, vaccine that actually targets BA5 as well as the original um, COVID-19 vaccine. And on that front, if you haven't yet gotten your second booster with the original vaccine and you're eligible to, you really should do it. Um, I know that some people might think that it's worth waiting for the new bivalent booster, but most likely you won't be on the list of the first people to receive that unless you have a specific autoimmune disease or some other reason to be at the top of the list. 
but people who are going to be at the top of the list for a brand new vaccine are going to be, you know, frontline workers, uh, doctors, nurses, people in nursing homes, people in hospitals, the extremely elderly, um, you know, they're going to be the first people to get that booster. And so it'll probably be a good, you know, six months before you're eligible. And by then it'll be okay to get another booster. And so, you know, we've talked about the idea of kind of the waning um, efficacy of boosters. But so far, what we've seen in trials is that the boosters really do help give you a good boost of um, protection against um, really severe illness and death every time so far. So we're doing pretty good. And as long as people are getting their boosters, I think it's only like 36% of those who are eligible have even gotten the first booster. And um, yeah, that's really unfortunate because we definitely want people to be out there getting their booster, being protected because, you know, it still continues to be a very hard disease. And so I know that some people have said that this particular variant is knocking them off their feet for several days. Now, again, deaths remain low compared to the initial Omicron spike, but they do not look like they are going towards zero anytime soon. They're still in the hundreds per week. And so that is not good. Several hundred people dying a week is still a lot of people. And so um, if you're someone like me who doesn't qualify for the second booster yet, I continue to urge you to wear a mask when you're indoors among strangers, especially in poorly ventilated areas or in close quarters. Even if you're not among strangers, um, I was actually at the office this week because we were doing a sort of working retreat. And, you know, I trust all of my coworkers. I know that they are being really serious about COVID still. And yet we wore our masks around each other the pretty much the entire time. And so it's just better to be safe. And I know that certainly I feel mask fatigue at times. There are times when I walk out of a building and I'm just like, oh, thank goodness I can breathe fresh air again. But it's way better than getting COVID. Um, because again, as we've talked about over and over again, uh, the chances of getting long COVID are not zero. If you get a mild case, you can still end up with long COVID even if you get a mild case. And so the best way to avoid all of this is to simply not become infected in the first place. Okay, so we are going to move on now. We could talk more about COVID tonight, but I think COVID fatigue in every corner is extremely real. Um, I read a couple of articles, but none of them are any sort of good news. So, um, yeah, let's, let's move on. Um, uh, maybe we'll talk about some of those things next week. Um, one of them was a very unsurprising, uh, study of, uh, vaccine availability early 
in the pandemic. And I bet you can tell me exactly what that study said without me having to tell you anything. So we're going to move on to our next public health uh, story. And so we're going to talk about monkeypox, which I am still waiting for the World Health Organization to rename because it's a really terrible name. And they have specifically devised a new policy that says that they are trying to phase out names with ethnic or racial or geographic connotations because, you know, people associate them with whatever that uh, happens to be. And we've already had that uh, with COVID was really bad initially. And I'm sure that even though we're not hearing about it as much, there's probably still uh, some Asian people in this country who have been harassed, um, you know, are still being harassed potentially because it was initially considered this uh, virus out of China. And the idea that it was something having to do with the people of China and not just the fact that new diseases have to come from somewhere. And so uh, there are definitely diseases that are endemic initially to the Americas. Um, I think hantavirus is the one I can think of offhand. Um, and so North and South America don't have as many, but that's because people haven't lived here nearly as long as in the rest of the continents. And so it's not really surprising that the places that were settled late last um, Australia um, and the Americas have a lot less of um, diseases that were actually uh, first developed in humans in those areas. And so people have been living in close quarters with animals in Africa and Asia and Europe for a lot longer. Okay, so we are going to stick with monkeypox for now because I don't have a new name for it. Um, and so they have, nonetheless, even though they haven't managed to come up with a new name for it, they have now officially declared that this is a public health emergency of international concern or a FIKE. At least that's how I'm pronouncing it, P-H-E-I-C. And so um, WHO Director General Tedros um, and I decided this time to forgo trying to butcher the rest of his name. Um, and so, uh, he is the director general and he goes by director general Tedros. And we're just going to go with that for this night. Um, and so apparently he had to make the call as a tiebreaker, which I find kind of surprising and distressing, but what are you going to do in life? So he noted that the criteria for declaring a fike include the scientific unknowns, risks to human health, and risks of further international spread. In short, Tedro said, we have an outbreak that has spread around the world rapidly through new modes of transmission about which we understand too little and which meets the criteria in the international health regulations. For all of these reasons, I have decided that the global monkeypox outbreak represents a public 
health emergency of international concern. So, yeah. He then issued a four-tiered set of recommendations for countries. The recommendations focus on issues such as coordinating responses to stop transmission, engaging with communities hardest hit by infection, intensifying surveillance tracking, improving infection control in health facilities, accelerating research into vaccines and therapeutics, which is a big one that we need right now, and managing international travel. Now, another impetus for declaring the FIKE is that there are now reports that at least three children have been infected. And so it's really starting to branch out into populations that we really hadn't seen it in at all yet. So two of those children uh, were in the U.S. One is a resident of California and the other was a, um, I believe their family uh, are foreign tourists and they were in Washington, D.C. when the um, child was diagnosed. And so it turns out that both of these cases, though, seem to be from household transmission that is actually connected to the main community who continue to be disproportionately affected. And that is, of course, the community of men who have sex with men or the MSM, um, just so that we can have a shorthand for it. Now, the big problem, though, is that there is a third child. And this is a boy from the Netherlands who recently became infected on a trip to Turkey. Health officials suspect he was infected via respiratory transmission. Now, they were really worried that it might have been, um, you know, some sort of uh, problem with the child having been abused in some way, uh, given how most of the cases are being spread through intimate contact, but they did really thoroughly test, thorough testing on him, you know, really thorough exams, talked to him, and it really seemed like they could rule out that there was any issue in that way. Um, and none of his family were infected. So neither of his parents nor either of, I believe he had two brothers and they were also um, not infected. So um, it both shows how people who are not connected to the main body of um, those who have been currently affected can be infected, but also shows that even though you can be infected via respiratory transmission, it's not easy. And so um, this is definitely not something to uh, be worried about yet. We haven't really seen a lot of cases where respiratory transmission is considered the vector. Most of it is still through intimate um, contact with people. And so it turns out that this boy actually had and I has an IgA deficiency. So not only did they do a bunch of tests to make sure that he didn't have any other comorbidities, they also did some genetic testing. And so IgA, or immunoglobulin A, is a class of antibiotic, 
antibodies sorry, that are active in the body's mucosal surfaces, such as in the respiratory tract. And so people with a deficiency are more prone to, well, respiratory infections. When you don't have part of your immune system working in your respiratory tract, you're more likely to be susceptible. Considering that IgA neutralizes the virus at the mucosal level, this suggests that respiratory transmission may have played a role, the authors of the case report concluded. And um, that is very interesting and a little worrisome, obviously. And so there still could be another way he could have gotten it. He could have had um, contact with bedclothes or something like that in some, uh, you know, odd coincidence with someone who had monkeypox, but they seem to really believe that it was probably um, through respiratory disease, especially given his genetic propensity. And so again, there, this is kind of a uh, potential iceberg uh, with the ongoing concern that the virus might be spreading in communities outside of the um, community of concern, which is, of course, uh, the community of MSM. And a big part of the reason that it may be more prevalent in this community is simply that they tend to have a closer relationship to healthcare providers than the general public. And so um, if there's one thing that men who have sex with men are doing, it is usually you know, having a real relationship with a healthcare provider, um, you know, on a regular basis, because most of them are very responsible people who want to be healthy and want to be able to, um, you know, not be sick. And so they are continually checking in with healthcare officials um, or providers. And so one person said, you're going to find things in the place where you're looking. And we are not quite sure yet um, if this strong signal is because we are doing that, uh, if it's an artifact of the current surveillance model, and um, we still have to look at that. It seems like it's probably still going to be a larger signal in this community, but we may be missing some. And so that is a little bit of a worry and a great reason why we should be really turning to focus on this more hardly and with more money and more um, manpower. And so as of last week, the CDC had detected 2,891 cases from 44 states and the District of Columbia in the United States. And according to the WHO, cases worldwide now top 16,000. And so the epicenter of the outbreak does continue to be largely in Europe. Spain has the most amount of cases, though the U.S. comes in second of individual countries with cases. Um, but of course, that's also a, um, you know, a fact that has to do with the, uh, proportion of population in America versus any European country. Uh, we have a lot more people, and so it's a lot easier for us to have big outbreaks. And so because it's in Europe, there's a lot of work that's already been started to be done. 
and a new paper published in the British Medical Journal looks at the case histories of 197 PCR-confirmed cases of monkeypox that occurred in a clinic in London. And so they found several interesting symptoms not typical of previous outbreaks. Some of the most common novel symptoms were rectal pain and penile swelling, as well as tonsil inflammation and solitary lesions without systemic symptoms. So basically someone could have a single lesion, still be positive for monkeypox, still potentially be able to um, pass it on to others. And that could be their only symptom. They could not have a fever, not have aches and pains, just literally a solitary lesion. And so the cohort that they looked at consisted of men with an average age of 38 who almost exclusively identified as gay, bisexual, or other uh, MSM. And so it turns out 37 of the 38 of them uh, identified that way. All presented with lesions on their skin or mucosal membranes, most commonly in the genitals or the perianal region. Traditionally, lesions are found on the face, hands, and sole of the feet, with the genitals sometimes being affected. And so we can see that there's a real difference in this outbreak from previous outbreaks. 86% presented with systemic illness, including 62% who had a fever, 58% with swollen lymph nodes, and 32% presented with muscle aches and pain. While most cases have been reported to have systemic symptoms preceding skin lesions, 38% of the patients in this cohort reported symptoms after the onset of mucosocutaneous lesions, and 14 presented with just lesions. The authors were most surprised by the solitary lesions and swollen tonsils. That's something that, you, that people haven't really seen in monkeypox infections before. Overall, 71 patients reported rectal pain, 33 sore throats, 31 penile edema, 27 had oral lesions, 22 had a solitary lesion, and 9 had swollen tonsils. I wonder if it would have been more people with swollen tonsils if they still had their tonsils. Um, I certainly have had my tonsils and adenoids out for many, many years. I get them done as a young, um, probably my, when I was like 12 or 13. 20 of the patients were admitted to the hospital for management of symptoms, mostly from rectal pain and um, penile edema. No deaths have yet been recorded outside of Africa. So there have been um, several deaths in Africa, I think four or five maybe, um, but that's actually usual for Africa. Um, Africa is where it is endemic uh, initially, and so there are usually some people who end up um, dying from this, but it's, you know, the people who are most likely to die of monkeypox are the same people who are most likely to die of infectious diseases, young people, people with immune uh, system compromises or people with uh, comorbidities, other diseases. Um, I don't know if it was specifically related to complications with other diseases or not. I didn't look into that quite as uh, finely this week. 
And so none of the patients required intensive care. So that's good, though I have heard some stories of people saying that it was pretty excruciatingly painful, um, not unmanageable, but pretty much very painful. And uh, as someone who had chicken pox when, when they were 18, um, I can assure you it was no fun. I was in incredible amounts of pain. And if it's anything like that, I feel very bad for anyone who has monkeypox or has had monkeypox because it was terrible. Um, I was in so much pain and, um, this is bad. And I don't think people should be kind of downplaying it in the way that they may be because of the people who are most involved. Um, I think it's really important that we continue to push to have people really take this seriously and to really reach out to people because it is very bad. And so the researchers did acknowledge the limitations of such observational studies, which rely on clinical notes that can vary from a small cohort with a single origin, but they believe the work is representative based on other clinical reports. The authors write, understanding these findings will have major implications for, contract, for contact tracing, public health advice, and ongoing infection control and isolation measures. And of course, I just really want to stress and be clear um, because I don't think people are necessarily being clear enough about that when they talk about it, that this is not something that is unique to this community for any reason that is unique to their persons. It just happens to be that the virus has found an opportune host population that also happens to be proactive in their healthcare. And so doctors were able to see it first in this population. And in fact, that's kind of good because we probably caught it faster than we would have if it was in the general population. There is nothing inherently different about men who sleep with men, uh, which makes them susceptible to this disease. It's really, really terrible that it's hitting at a time in the U.S. where the rights of the LGBTQ plus community uh, are pretty much threatened every day, it seems. And, um, yeah. And outside of the U S it is even worse. And so, uh, there are places outside of the U S where, you know, it can be deadly to be, um, associated with this kind of infection based on the population that it is most like likely to infect. And so we have to remember that there are still places where um, being gay can be a death sentence. And so I think it's really important that we work really hard to take care of this and shut it down and get it under control before it goes even further. Okay, so I do want to quickly wrap up our trio of current infectious disease outbreaks by talking about a new preprint paper which suggests a new theory 
for the potentially mysterious outbreaks of childhood hepatitis. Overall, the World Health Organization has tracked more than 1,000 probable cases in 35 countries of childhood hepatitis. And so 46 children have required liver transplants and 22 have died from the disease. The new hypothesis looked at nine early cases from Scotland. They found that all nine children were infected with adeno-associated virus 2, or AAV2. This is a small, non-enveloped DNA virus in the dependoparvovirus genus. These kinds of viruses can only replicate in the presence of another virus, like the adenovirus or some herpes viruses. And so the adenovirus is um, one of the ones that basically causes the common cold and some other, um, that's sort of the family of viruses that cause the common cold. The hepatitis cases in Scotland occurred during a spike in adenovirus infection. They found that all nine cases were positive for AAV2 and that none of the 58 members of their various control groups were infected with the virus. A separate study by researchers in London found similar findings in 26 unexplained hepatitis cases with 136 controls. Many of the hepatitis cases had AAV2, while very few of the control groups were positive for this hitchhiker virus. They further found that eight of the nine children in the Scottish cohort had a specific genetic variant for a human leukocyte antigen called HLA-DRB1-04-01. This variant is found in only around 16% of overall blood donors in Scotland. And so obviously that is a much stronger signal in eight of the nine uh, cases. And it's already known to be linked to autoimmune hepatitis and rheumatoid arthritis cases. And so human leukocyte antigen, or HLA, is also known as major histocompatibility complex, or MHC. And so these are usually proteins outside of immune cells that present antigens, such as bits of virus or bacteria, to T-cells. This trains the T-cells to properly respond to potential threats by either triggering immune responses to germs or tolerating certain antigens that are part of the overall system. And so the researchers believe that all three elements are necessary, infection with both viruses and the faulty immune response due to this genetic variation. Now, of course, if you're uh, used to me talking about this or, um, you know, used to dealing with scientific papers, you'll probably already be thinking that, well, this is a vanishingly small sample size. And that I also mentioned at the beginning that this is in preprint, which means it has not yet been peer reviewed. But it's an interesting hypothesis that so far mean seems to match with clinical outcomes. So I wanted to... Um, you know, share it because I have been talking about this um, potential outbreak for a long time. And so, of course, I do remember that the World Health Organization has shared that it's not even sure that this is a true outbreak of something mysterious or just statistical noise. 
but it's always good to explore ways in which we might mitigate or prevent any childhood diseases, especially ones that can lead to organ failure and death. Um, Because of course, if you have to have a liver transplant when you are a child, you potentially have to take immunosuppressing drugs for the rest of your life. And that's a lot for a little kid. All right. I do have one more medicine-related story, but we're going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs beforehand. So uh, do come back, and we're going to talk about a new rabies vaccine. All right. Please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back And as promised, we are going to talk about the uh, promising results from a phase one trial for a new vaccine for rabies. Now, there are already vaccines on the market for rabies, but most are not single dose and they can be expensive. The current single-dose vaccine that has been approved um, by the World Health Organization for use does not really sustain a high titer of neutralizing antibodies and really only works for some people. 
Um, and so they basically deployed it as a, it's better than nothing, um, kind of drug, which is true. And I absolutely get that, but there's definitely room for improvement there. And so researchers at the University of Oxford's Jenner Institute have developed a single shot rabies vaccine. Chadox 2 Rab G. And so, um, this is their, they published their paper in the Lancet Microbe and they reported that 12 volunteers were initially recruited. Uh, but it turned out that one person in each group declined the vaccine, which I find a little frustrating. So this is an even smaller sample. Um, but, uh, we'll talk about how there's other trials going on for it. And so, uh, ultimately, Two people received a low dose, two received a medium dose, and five received a high dose of the vaccine. Strong immune responses were generated by the vaccine, and all of the medium and high dose volunteers developed levels of neutralizing antibodies that were above the WHO's protective threshold within two months. No serious adverse effects were reported with only expected short-term side effects such as soreness at the injection site and feverishness, mainly in the medium and high-dose cohorts. They also did follow-up work and found that six of the seven middle and high-dose recipients ret retained a high level of neutralizing antibody levels above the protective threshold after one year. Associate Professor Sandy Douglas Chief investigator of at the trial at the Jenner Institute said in a press release that we're absolutely delighted with these early results. The vaccine has performed even better than we had expected. The problems with existing rabies vaccines are that they are expensive and require multiple doses. We're very hopeful that expanded trials in countries affected by rabies will prove that this new vaccine could enable routine, affordable, single-dose vaccinations against this devastating disease for people living in such areas. And so, lead clinical researcher Dr. Daniel Jenkin noted that a new vaccine based on modern techniques could be a lifesaver for the tens of thousands of rabies deaths that occur an annually. Now, the latest data I could find estimates that 59,000 people die from rabies every year. Between 59,000 and 52,000 uh, was kind of the range. Um, so even at the low end, it's still a lot of people. Most of those people are in Africa and Asia. Um, India, for instance, has had a huge problem with rabies, especially as declining populations of vultures led to a boom in wild and stray dog populations that could spread disease amongst themselves, and then they spread them onto pets, and then uh, they, the pets and potentially wild stray dogs as well, ended up um, will end up passing that on to humans through bites. And so um, there's a big problem with children who get bitten and don't realize it or don't say anything, and um, then they don't get into a treatment program. And if you don't get into treatment very quickly. Uh, your window will basically close and um, 
if you have untreated rabies, canine rabies, it will it pretty much has a hundred percent um death rate. It's definitely extremely, extremely um deadly. Um and so this is a big reason why we need a better vaccine than is available. And so the Chad Ox2 uh, vector is a weakened adenovirus. Again, that's the uh, virus that generally causes the common cold. It's genetically modified to prevent replication in the human body. The technology has previously been used in the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. A phase 1b2 clinical trial to assess safety and immuno, immunogenicity is underway in Tanzania, and full results of that trial are due in late 2023. So let's hope that we continue to see really good results um, because a lot of people could be saved by this. Um, it's one of the big reasons why uh, people in America and in other countries like Australia, um, why there's a lot of quarantining of dogs and things like that. Um, if you fly internationally, your dog might have to go into quarantine. Why it's, uh, you know, a, why you get a fine if your dog isn't up to date on their rabies vaccine. It's because rabies, um, canine rabies is mostly controlled in these countries by vaccination of dogs. That is the easiest way to do it is to simply not let dogs get rabies. And so that's why there's such strict controls because, um, you know, there are places in the world that have kind of kept rabies under control and they want to keep it that way because it's deadly. Okay. So let's switch gears now and talk about a cool potential finding already coming out of the images that have been released from the Webb telescope. Before we begin, though, I want to take a second to explain why I'm now okay calling it the Webb. My girlfriend pointed out to me that David Webb is the real name of Jason Bourne, and so I think that the name of a fictional spy uh, character is a pretty good one for a space telescope. Um, so that's what I'm going to think about from now on. I'm going to think of Jason Bourne when I say the Webb tel Telescope, and that satisfies my brain. Um, and I know that no one else will really get that, but um, I feel like I have to kind of use the name, and uh, that's how I'm going to justify it in my own head. Uh, so feel free to use that if you want to. <laughs> okay. So two sets of researchers have spotted what they think are some very old galaxies. One of the exciting things about the web is that some data sets are being released pretty much immediately rather than being embargoed by certain astronomers who have submitted proposals for observations ahead of time. Now, not all data sets will be immediately public domain, but definitely some of it in some of it will be including the GLASS dataset, which used the cluster Abel 2744 as a gravitational lens in order to peer back into the deep past and find galaxies that are very, very far away from us. The data represents long exposures taken at different chunks of the infrared spectrum, the NERCAM instrument's wavelength capacity was divided into seven chunks, 
each getting from one and a half to 6.6 hours of exposure. Two teams have analyzed this data and found galaxies that look very old. They looked for galaxies that were present in some chunks and then disappeared in others. They used the understanding that the early universe was filled with hydrogen atoms for hundreds of millions of years after the formation of the cosmic microwave background. These atoms would absorb any light at or above a wavelength that could ionize the hydrogen, basically making higher wavelengths opaque to the early universe. Initially, this cutoff was in the ultraviolet, but the expansion has caused that cutoff to shift into the infrared. So we always talk about red shifting in um, astronomy, and so that is the fact that the further something gets away from you, the more the light from it shifts from the ultraviolet into the infrared. And so this was actually one of the main reasons that the web was designed to look specifically at the infrared spectrum, because it's meant to look at these really, really distant and thus really, really ancient um, galaxies. And so objects present in chunks representing the lowest energies but absent from higher energy chunks suggest that these objects are from very early in the formation of the universe. Five objects were found in one team's work, but they focused on two, glass Z13 and glass Z11. They think glass Z13 may be the most distant and thus oldest galaxy we've ever imaged, further than anything in the Hubble Deep field. So um, before Webb came along, Hubble did this um, set of images that it basically kept its aperture open for a really long time and just took a stationary picture. Um, and I'm sure you've probably seen it where you just have all these little fuzzy dots all over the, the images and that's all galaxies that are far, far away. Um, and therefore from a long time ago. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and um, it's important to keep in mind, though, that uh, these aren't proven galaxies until there's actually been a spectroscopic observation taken that confirms that they actually are real galleries, galaxies. Um, and this will probably take a while to be completed, maybe another year or two, um, some have suggested. And also, neither of these papers has gone through peer review yet, but the images are pretty telling. Um, and so there's a good chance that these objects are really there and that they're not noise. And though they're most likely pretty standard small disk galaxies with about a, with about a billion stars, um, comparable to those they found in Hubble's deep field observations, so pretty small compared to the galaxies we have nowadays, but obviously um, that makes a lot of sense because they would have been pretty small back then comparatively. Um, it's actually, you know, obviously super amazing to be able to see these galaxies that are so close to the Big Bang compared to us and so old. But it 
turns out that this is kind of a problem. (laughs) And so, um, you know, they would have probably formed a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. And turns out that our current understanding of physics suggests that they shouldn't actually be there, at least not in that abundance. Researchers suggest that our physics would require a field 10 times what was actually imaged in order to find that percentage abundance of galaxies. So if all of this holds up to further analysis and editing, it means we're going to have to go back to the drawing board and our understanding of the formation of the first stars and galaxies, which I frankly think is pretty amazing and uh, very awesome and not um, an issue at all. I know that whenever something like this happens, people are quick to point out that, you know, scientists didn't have it right. It's like, no, no, they just didn't have enough information yet to get it right. So now they have more information and now they can be more right. Uh, And so in the one paper they write, uh, it is still unclear what the physical reason for this might be. And uh, at another point in the paper, the physical mechanisms driving this departures, this departure are yet to be definitively established. (laughs) So again, if all this pans out, it's going to be pretty exciting uh, for astronomers. They're going to have some good times trying to figure out what the heck is actually going on. (laughs) Okay, so uh, let's switch to much closer to home and talk about how NASA has made an exciting announcement. They've majorly revised their plan for the retrieval of the rock samples currently being collected by Perseverance. Initially, they were going to be, there were going to be two rovers that would collect the samples and then a rocket would be used to get the samples back to Earth. The second rover would be a kind of a backup plan. Um, in case something happened with either the initial rover or Percy that prevented the two from coming together to make the handoff. But NASA has decided to replace that second rover with a pair of helicopters, which will be deployed with the rocket array rather than separately, and so this will significantly lower the risk of the overall operation by calling for only one payload. NASA is confident that with the success of Ingenuity, they'll be able to design a next-generation helicopter that will be able to handle small payloads and will be able to either take samples directly from Percy or from cache sites and return them to the rocket or the Mars Ascent vehicle to blast them into orbit. And once they are in orbit, they will be transferred to the Earth Return Orbiter, which will be built by the ESA and returned to Earth in 2033. That's so far away still. (laughs) The next step is to confer with the ESA and make sure everyone is on board with the new plan. Now, I think it's going to be really awesome. Um, I am super excited by the prospect of having helicopters in space. Yes, please. Um, more helicopters in space, um, obviously around planets. I mean, I mean, technically maybe you could have a helicopter in interstellar space. Doubtful. 
um, given the way that helicopters work, which is pushing against air, uh, because obviously in interstellar space, there's very, very few molecules. Um, but yeah, so on, uh, you know, planets like Mars and, um, so the next step is that they need to confer with the ESA to make sure that everyone is on board with the new plan because the ESA was going to create that second rover. And so we do just want to make sure that, you know, everybody is cool. Um, I assume that they will be because who doesn't want to build a helicopter for Mars rather than a rover for Mars? Rovers are so done. <laughs> um, and of course, part of this will probably be really good for giving us experience in how to create flying crafts for use on other planets and moons in the solar system. So Europa, for instance, or uh, other Jupiter moons that we could go and uh, send flying craft to that would be able to um, cover a lot more distance quickly than a traditional rover would. Um, and then we have to devise a submarine too, but we'll get there eventually. Hopefully in my lifetime. Okay, so we are going to finish up tonight with talking about octopuses, as I mentioned. Um, and so the first story is a bit about, uh, it's another story of biomimicry. I really like biomimicry uh, stories, obviously. Uh, if you are a longtime listener, you know that. And so this time it's the tale of the octoglove. And so as you can probably guess, this is a glove that mimics the octopus's suction cups in order to grip things, um, and especially grip things underwater. And so they chose the octopus because the adhesive qualities of suckers can be quickly reversed. So basically you can pick something up and put it down very easily, as well as you can attach to both wet and dry surfaces with ease. When we looked at the octopus, the adhesive certainly stands out, quickly activating and releasing adhesion on demand, said co-author Michael Bartlett, a mechanical engineer at Virginia Tech. What is just as interesting, though, is that the octopus controls over 2,000 suckers across eight arms by processing information from diverse chemical and mechanical sensors. The octopus is really bringing together adhesion, tunability, sensing, and control to manipulate underwater objects. And so from a mechanical engineering definition, the octopus has an active pressure-driven system for adhesion. The sucker's wide outer rim creates a seal via a preferred pressure differential between the chamber created by the sucker against the object and the surrounding medium. Their muscles act as actuators to contract and relax the cupped area behind the rim to add or release pressure on demand. Others have already turned to cephalopods to create biomimicry-inspired soft robotic grippers, but Bartlett and his colleagues wanted to go further to create not just switchable adhesion, 
but also integrated sensing and control like the actual animals have. First, they used silicone stalks capped with a pneumatically controlled membrane, mimicking the physical structure of the suckers. They then integrated these with an array of LiDAR optical proximity sensors and a microcontrol for real-time detection of objects. When the sensors detect an object, they turn on the adhesion, much as an octopus would do using their nervous and muscular systems. They then needed to incorporate the system into a wearable glove. They used a neoprene wetsuit glove as their base. By merging soft, responsive, adhesive materials with embedded electronics, we can grasp objects without having to squeeze, said Bartlett. It makes handling wet or underwater objects much easier and more natural. The electronics can activate and release adhesion quickly. Just move your hand toward an object and the glove does the work to grasp. It can all be done without the user pressing a single button. They also note that the system is not limited by visual input and that other sensing methods like chemical or mechanical sensing could also be incorporated. This could be particularly interesting as it is known that the octopus displays a diverse set of vision, chemical, and mechanical sensing during manipulation, the authors wrote. And so uh, he says that the glove is a starting off point and that they could then move on to creating softer arms that are more tentacle-like and mimic the actual anatomy of the octopus. Okay, that's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you, as always, for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.